Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, March 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, it's been two years to the day since Mississippi's first COVID-19 case. Two years since the World Health Organization declared COVID a pandemic. We'll look at where it all started, how far we've come, and what we've lost along the way. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers say a teacher pay raise is one of their top priorities, but have yet to pass a bill to address the issue. As MPB's Kobe Vance reports, House lawmakers moved to reshape an existing bill without consulting the Senate. The teacher pay bill in the Mississippi legislature has been modified by House lawmakers to include some of the Senate's teacher pay plan while primarily adopting the immediate pay raises of the House plan. Speaker of the House Philip Gunn says his plan is the better option and Senate lawmakers also appointed to the conference committee were not involved. We don't see how there could be an improvement over that. Now, it's my understanding that they did make some suggestions that y'all adopted, but as far as the typical conference, no. There was no conference meeting that I know of. Senate conferees confirmed that they were not consulted before the report was released. Democratic Senator Angela Turner Ford of West Point is asking why her chamber was not involved. It does not sound like the conference as we know it has taken place. The back and forth debate over teacher pay between the House and the Senate is being called political jockeying by House Minority Leader Robert Johnson. We've been working so hard to try to get these same people who are fighting about which one of the plans they're going to take to even pass a teacher pay raise at all. I will vote for either one of them. The deadline for all conference reports is the 24th of March. Kobe Vance, MPB News. A bill advancing in Mississippi says anyone could cite religious objections to avoid a public or private employer's COVID-19 vaccination mandate. House Bill 1509 passed the Senate 36 to 15 this week with Republicans in favor and most Democrats opposed. One Democrat did not vote. A version of the bill passed the House in January, also mostly along party lines. Because the Senate made changes, the bill will go to final negotiations. The measure says Mississippi government entities could not withhold services or refuse jobs to people who choose not to get COVID-19 vaccinations. Mandates for the vaccine have not been widespread in the state. Coming up, the COVID-19 pandemic two years in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Today marks two years since the first case of COVID-19 was detected in the state. Mississippi has weathered one of the worst COVID cases 
in the country, or rather crises. Per the Department of Health, more than 8,000 Mississippians are confirmed to have died of the disease. That's not counting over 4,000 more suspected COVID deaths. Dr. Luann Woodward, Woodward is Vice Chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She's led the hospital's coronavirus response since the early days of the pandemic. MPB's Michael Guidry asked Dr. Woodward to take us back to March of 2020. We knew that if there was a significant impact in Mississippi that we would bear the brunt of that. You know, we are the only academic medical center. We have over 200 ICU beds here and they are never empty. And we knew that if it hit Mississippi and if it hit Mississippi hard, that it would definitely have a big impact on us. Um, what we didn't know for sure, and, and this really backs up a little bit earlier than March, but, you know, late 2019, very early in 2020, as we were hearing about this pandemic and this outbreak of the coronavirus um, overseas, we were not completely sure that it was going to get to us. There have been pandemics in the last 10, 15 years that, you know, pandemics that have been declared but have really not impacted the U.S. very heavily or at least certainly not Mississippi. So we were watching it, but it was with an uncertainty of what the impact would be here. And then, of course, when cases hit in the U.S. on both the West Coast and the East Coast, we were in touch with some of our colleagues there through different sort of web conferences and, and connections and and got a little bit of a heads up, maybe, or a preliminary look at how very sick those patients were and how contagious this was. So that gave us a little time to prepare as much as you can prepare when you don't yet have one of these patients or, you know, like I said, don't have it here in the state yet. But we did have a little time to get our teams together and to strategize and to talk about it. But it really was not until March when we started having patients that tested positive and patients that that got sick. Even at that point in time, we were, I think, not expecting it to last as long as it did. I, I would have been a little surprised if somebody would have said, you know, you've got another whole year of this. What did you learn about the state of of public health during that period when it came to the availability of protective gear you needed, the, the life-saving uh, instruments like ventilators that you needed? What, what did that first year tell us about the state of public health in Mississippi? I would say that, that you know, the short answer to that is we were not really completely prepared for something like this that was so significant and hit everywhere and stayed, you know, it stayed on and on and on. Part of the, um, the uncertainty, the, the challenge was this virus was so unpredictable, unpredictable from the standpoint of from one patient to another that's been exposed whether or not they would get sick and the degree to which they would, you know, have symptoms and and be sick, and even what their primary manifestation of the virus and the illness was. It it could vary so much from person to person to person 
that that was another layer of the real challenge that um, that went into this. You know, you could have two people that were exposed and one of them barely has a cold and the other one ends up in the ICU. And just trying to understand why people were impacted in such a different way and had such a different course with this virus, you know, there was so much learning that was going on while we were trying to take care of very sick patients. And, you know, in healthcare, we are used to taking care of very sick patients. But in most cases, there's a sense of understanding of the underlying disease. And this virus was and continues to be um, so much of a, you know, I don't want to say a mystery, but so much of it is unpredictable and has such a variable impact and effect on people that that in and of itself was also a huge challenge for us as we tried to navigate. But there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of having to make important and impactful decisions when you knew there was a lot you didn't know very challenging times. We have seen an an intersectionality between health policy and partisan politics. Uh, in 2020, it was mitigation efforts like masking to treatment and the, the question of hydroxychloroquine and, and later on ivermectin. And then in 2021, when the vaccines were available, uh, the, the eff- efficacy of the vaccines what impact has that had on the ability to fight a disease like this going back to 2020? How has it affected just healthcare in general in the state and the nation? You know, I have seen our state and our nation in these last few years be more divided than I personally think we've ever been. And and that, it, it, I feel, you know, it's very sad, honestly. It's, in some ways, the way that the reactions to and responses to and and then receptivity to different sorts of intervention, the way that those were had, became politicized, it's just almost inexplicable. I cannot understand it. I've thought about that a lot. And I'm thinking about it as a person who likes science, who has a career in science, a career in healthcare. So, you know, I come to that table with my own biases, but it has been just baffling to me how much people have let the politics of something impact, you know, like I said, what they're willing to do or not do or, you know, what they think about things. I understand the sentiment of seeing something happen and feel like that probably won't happen to me. I'm healthy. I'm this. I'm that. I'm young. You know, I, I'm i not sick. I, I'll be all right. I understand that bit of deniability. You know, we all have that in different parts of our lives. But the magnitude of the misinformation, I think that I, I am on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, and to some, in some ways I like those, I enjoy those, I enjoy the interaction, but I do think that social media allowed um, misinformation to really spread like wildfire, perhaps in the way that that couldn't have happened, you know, 20 years ago. 
not that I'm blaming all of this on social media by any means, but there are just a number of variables that that we were in a position where people were not, I think, receptive to hearing hearing things for different personal reasons, and and it has it has been a baffling part of this experience. How are we as far as recovering the state uh, statewide nursing staff, both the physical and emotional health of our our, our healthcare professionals? What is your assessment of, of what that is like right now? I think that we are we're a long way away from, you know, using the word recovering. I think we're a long way away from that. We were in a bit of a nursing shortage before the pandemic ever happened. The pandemic has worsened that. It's worsened it tremendously, and the people that have stayed in nursing and the people going into nursing, you know, they are... They have been through some serious trauma. All of our frontline health care providers, the physician, the respiratory therapist, the pharmacist, the chaplains, you know, the social workers, they have really been through a sustained traumatic event. And it will take some time before people recover from that, both just physically and from the fatigue, as well as emotionally, you know, having the feeling that things are getting a little bit more back to normal, having good days every once in a while when you when you have a shift and you're taking care of patients and 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 they're you know things are going well those those are good moments, but I think it will take much more time before we recover before we catch up with our nursing workforce and and get back to the numbers and the kind of staffing that we need. Um, I think we've got a long road ahead of us. And finally, earlier you you mentioned how if you know in late 2020 or even the summer of 2020, you would have, someone would have said you've been doing this in a year, you wouldn't have quite believed them. We're, we're, we're two years in. What needs to be done, or how do we live with years three, four, five, and so on uh, of COVID-19? Yeah, I heard somebody say the other day, I thought this was a good way to say it, that, that we're not trying to run from it. We all realize that that it is it is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. And I think we will manage it just like we will other viruses that will, you know, again, um, I need to put an asterisk by this to say unless we have another big surge or, you know, things change. But if they continue to go in the direction that they are, Right now, I think we will learn to live with this and manage it just like we do the flu, where we know every year there's going to be a different variant of the flu that, that, that we have to deal with, and you know the things that you do as precautions um, and what the symptoms are and what to watch for and, and all of those things. So I, at least for the foreseeable future, I'm hoping that that, I feel like that's our best-case scenario, that that's kind of the mode that we get into I think we have learned and now have our eyes much more wide open about the possibility of the next pandemic, whether it is a terrible variant of the coronavirus or the next virus or whatever it may be. You know, I think we all realize that there will be another one and we need to be more prepared. We need to be prepared from things like the supply chain standpoint, supplies, workforce, um, better monitoring systems, better sort of public warning systems. Um, I, I think we've learned a lot, and at least in the short run, we all feel pretty vigilant about these things that we've learned and keeping them on the 
on the forefront. I just hope that that as time passes, we don't forget. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. More Mississippi edition ahead on this two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Two years ago today, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The CDC estimates that over a hundred million people have since been infected in the U.S., including millions across Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Healthcare reporter Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom takes us through some of the key moments from her coverage over the past year. In 2020, Mardi Gras in New Orleans was the event that sparked the spread of COVID-19 in the South. Carnival season in 2021 wasn't canceled, but it wasn't the same as before the pandemic. Starting today through Mardi Gras Day on Tuesday, all bars will be closed citywide. The vaccine rollout was underway and provided a sense of hope. But communities of color who had been disproportionately harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic were also at risk of being left behind in the vaccine rollout. I was getting calls. Where can I get it? Community leaders like Tasha Clark Amar in Baton Rouge struggled to meet demand when the vaccine came out in early February. How do you get it? How do you sign up? Is there an application? Do I pay for it? There was also a lot of hesitancy about taking the vaccine. Have y'all got your shot yet? No. Do you want want me to sign you up for for that? No. No. In Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, black doctors and nurses like Sonia Fuqua stepped up to be role models. And I've heard people say, because I saw you, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Then the narrative changed. Some people, like Brandon Ade in white rural communities in the South, were resistant to getting the shot. I'll admit it, the South is, you know, I'm American, I can do what I want, and you ain't going to take my guns, and it's my body, and, and why take the risk? As teenagers became eligible... Activities like high school football games were back on. When children under 12 could get the shot, some weren't too excited. So many parents and kids were thrilled. I loved it. I didn't even hear it one bit. Still, the South remained undervaccinated, and as new variants of COVID emerged, cases surged. In the ICU, patients were younger and sicker, like Amy Mullins, who was recovering from her severe infection. I, I, I tell you, my faith is what's got me. Because God's got this. I've got God, and I'm going to be okay. Hospital leaders like Alvin Hoover struggled to find staff to treat those patients amid an ongoing national nursing shortage. Patients come to the emergency room. They wait and wait and wait and wait for their care because we don't have a room, we don't have a nurse. And nurses like Kimberly Carson continue to quit from feeling burnt out and undervalued by health systems. Where were you at at the beginning when we really needed you? Where were you? Dr. Robert Smith, a civil rights leader and physician in Mississippi, says the pandemic has highlighted the need for equal access to care. I have some hope, but 
nothing is achieved without a struggle uh, and a commitment. Now, two years after it all began, cases are trending down once again, and what's ahead is uncertain. But one lesson is clear. Good health is a human right, and it ought to be a guarantee to all Americans. This year in New Orleans, Mardi Gras activities were in full swing, signaling another glimmer of hope for a return to normalcy. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutwani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a safe weekend.